My grandmother never believed that men went to the moon. She just simply couldn't believe that. She said they went out there in the deserts in Arizona or New Mexico someplace and they made a stage and they filmed all that out there, but men never went to the moon. She was absolutely convinced of that. You couldn't tell her otherwise. Now, I assume that all of us here this morning believe that men did go to the moon uh, back in that time. It's been a while since we've been there, but we believe that men went there. And if you stop to think about it, the reason we believe that uh, is that uh, we accept the evidence. There is reasonable evidence, and there uh, it's even significant in the amount of evidence, and there are reliable witnesses who tell us so. We believe that men surely did go to the moon. Now, you might ask the question, why are you starting out that way, talking about men going to the moon? Well, I want to suggest to you, just like my grandmother doubted that men went to the moon, there are people, in fact, I think their numbers are increasing, there are people who doubt that the flood that was recorded in the book of Genesis in the days of Noah, that flood that Roger read to us about just a few minutes ago, there are people who doubt that that flood really happened like the Bible says that it happened. Uh, let me give you just a taste of that. In U.S. News and World Report a while back, it was written, the evidence and arguments from science stack up overwhelmingly against a literal interpretation of the flood story. Now, you might not be too surprised to read that coming out of a secular publication, people doubting that what the Bible says about the flood really occurred. You might, you might be more shocked to know that even some Christians are doubting it. Here's a statement from a fellow named John Willis. John Willis is or was a Bible professor at Abilene Christian University. He had also previously been associated with Lipscomb University in Nashville. At Abilene, he was named Teacher of the Year and Distinguished Professor and he said, there is simply not sufficient concrete information to allow a dogmatic judgment on this matter about the flood. He was writing about the flood. So here's a fellow at a Christian university saying, I don't know. I'm not sure you can really believe what the Bible says about that worldwide flood. That may be an exaggeration. So people are doubting whether or not the flood in the days of Noah happened. And so for a few minutes, what I want to talk about this morning is why we should believe in the Genesis flood. Why we should believe what the Bible says about the flood. Uh, we're going to look at uh, quickly just a few reasons, but really what we want to stress, especially in our lesson, we need to believe in that flood because that flood has great implications toward the future for us. And we need to believe that flood and therefore believe what's coming in the future for us. Thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate you all very much. We've got a beautiful Lord's Day and a great opportunity to be together. We have visitors as we typically do. We're glad that you came. We want you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. Ask any questions that come to mind. We'd be glad to deal with your questions. We're very open to that. Now, we won't get mad. Even if you disagree with us, we won't get mad. We want to search out the Bible. We want to understand what it teaches. We want to apply it accurately. We believe that's how God is glorified. When we do His will in His way, then he is glorified in that process, and that's what we're here for, to glorify God. Thanks for being here today. Why should we believe in the flood? I think there's several reasons that we could suggest as to why we ought to believe that the flood story told in Genesis is literally true, that it was a worldwide flood that covered the whole earth. First of all, we could say 
if words mean anything, you've got to believe that that's what happened because that's what the Bible says. The language could not be plainer concerning the extent of the flood. Did you remember there in the passage that Roger read for us? It said all the high mountains were under the whole heaven, that were under the whole heaven were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth. Now, I don't know how you could take that any other way. If you believe the Bible, the Bible definitely says the entire earth was covered. Furthermore, if the flood was just a localized event, then why would God have instructed Noah to work so hard and for so long to construct an ark to save his family and the animals that were on the ark? If it was just a localized event, well, he could have just told Noah, you go up that way because the flood's going to hit here, but up yonder, they won't have a flood. The animals almost certainly would have migrated away from the flood waters and been protected. The flood story makes no sense at all if it wasn't a worldwide flood. We could also say that if the, if the flood of Noah wasn't literally true as recorded in the book of Genesis, then what distinguishes it from lots of other floods that have happened? There have been numerous devastating floods in various areas of the earth. Uh, and, and, and there are floods that can impact certain areas for weeks on end. Uh, but Noah's flood, of course, Noah and the animals that were with him on the ark were on the ark for over a year. That's not the same, is it? Uh, and so we need to believe that Genesis flood story for sure. We could also argue that God made a covenant with Noah following the flood. He said there'll never be another flood like this flood was. But if Noah's flood was just a, a, a pretty significant localized flood, there have been lots of floods like that since then. And so God's broken his promise to Noah. If it wasn't a worldwide flood, then God has not kept the promise he made with Noah. But finally, we could argue uh, that the flood was designated as specific punishment against an evil world. Remember there in Genesis chapter 6, it says that all the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually, and God determined that he was going to destroy the earth and its inhabitants. It was sent as judgment, but if it was only a local flood that only impacted certain people, then it didn't get the job done. So what I'm saying here, very quickly, what I'm saying is there's a whole lot of reasons that you can add up to say, if, you, if you're going to believe, you've got to believe that the flood story in Genesis is literally true, that it was a worldwide flood, and that it killed all living things that walked upon the earth, except for Noah and his family and the animals that were with him in the ark that were spared because of the ark. You have to believe that. But I think I can give you one more reason that is the topper of them all, and no doubt the most compelling reason why we have to believe the flood story and that is because Jesus believed it. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37? We're going to be looking at Matthew 24 a little bit more here as we go into our study. But in Matthew 24, verse 37, it says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Jesus taught that the flood of Genesis that happened in the days of Noah was literal and true. Jesus believed the flood. Therefore, we should believe the flood story too. You might look at it this way. Any form of argumentation that you might offer to prove that Jesus is and was the only begotten Son of God. Anything that proves the identity of Jesus also proves that the flood happened. 
Because if Jesus is who he said he was, then he was telling the truth when he acknowledged the flood. Therefore, any proof of Jesus is proof of the flood. Do you get that? We should definitely believe that the Genesis flood that we so often talk about happened. And it wasn't figurative, it was literal. It truly happened just as the book of Genesis says that it did. Now, with that in place, let me suggest to you that it's really important for us to believe the Genesis flood because of the implications it has to us and how we should believe and act. The Genesis flood teaches us a lot about saving faith. Consider that for a minute. If you, if you study that story of Genesis, if you talk about Noah, you're going to learn about faith, the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Now, I think everybody agrees that faith is necessary. In John chapter 3, and verse 16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith is essential. Everybody agrees that we've got to have faith. No one doubts that. But there is some dispute about the nature of that faith. What is it? What's it like? What kind of faith do we need to have? Recently, we studied in James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, verse 24, beginning, it says, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Notice that it, we're saved not by faith only. And so the kind of faith that God wants is not just a faith that says, yes, I accept that as being true. It's a faith that responds. It's an obedient faith. And I think we get great help in this from considering the story of Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Notice, by faith Noah prepared an ark. Now think about that for a minute. He believed. He believed what God told him. What did he do? He did a tremendous task of constructing that ark. We've commented before that it has only been within the last 100 years that men ever attempted to make a vessel bigger than Noah's Ark. Now, within the last century, they have done that. Some of the big super tankers that go across the oceans today are bigger or have more holding capacity than Noah's Ark did. But that's only been within the last 100 years. And only with the advent of modern machinery and equipment that makes that kind of a job possible. Noah was told to construct that enormous ark and think about the fact that he had no such tools, no such aids, and yet he, he built that ark. Genesis suggests that it may have taken him as much as 120 years to construct the ark, and that's very literally possible considering the massive assignment that he was given. What does Noah teach us about faith then? Noah acted in faith. What did he do? He worked for 120 years to build that enormous ark. When you have the faith that God wants you to have, then it is the kind of faith that causes you to respond and do what he says to do. And so, if we believe the flood, then we believe something very important about what is true saving faith. And I just want to ask you a question this morning. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have the kind of faith that leads you to be obedient to everything God tells you to do. 
That's the only kind of faith that's going to save you. Faith without works is dead, James says. And Noah tells us the kind of faith you need is the kind of faith that says, God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. What is it? I'll do it. And so, certainly, the flood of Noah teaches us about saving faith. I think that if we believe the Genesis story about the flood, it also demonstrates to us the importance of baptism. I don't have to tell you that there's plenty of controversy in the religious world about baptism. But I would suggest that all of that controversy could be removed if we simply learned the lesson of Noah. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3, it says, The long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this passage is real helpful about baptism. But it makes its point about baptism by pointing back to that flood story that we're talking about this morning. Let's just take this verse, or this passage apart for a minute. Eight souls were saved by water. You understand that, don't you? You don't have any trouble understanding how they were saved in the flood. Noah constructed the ark. When the floodwaters came up, it carried that ark to safety. And so they were saved by water. But think about that for a minute. It wasn't the water alone or the water per se that saved them. In fact, the water killed everything else, right, that breathed the air. So it wasn't the water per se. It was the water linked with Noah's obedient faith in regards to the fact that he had prepared that ark. So the water saved them because, in faith, Noah had responded to the instructions of God. Uh, the, the obedient faith led him to, that, to do that work, and thus they were saved. Now, the passage says, In like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Think about the word figure there. Some people try to make something of that. The like figure Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. What does that mean when talking about a like figure? Well, what uh, Peter is saying here is that a parallel can be drawn. You can make a conclusion based upon what happened in the time of Noah and the flood. It'd be sort of like a judge. A fellow goes before a judge for a certain crime, and the judge says, I'm going to make an example out of you. Well, what's he mean? He's, he means he's going to deal with this fellow in such a way that other people will learn something as a result of it, right? And so that's what this passage is saying. The example of Noah is such that we can learn from it. And so in like figure, like Noah was saved by his obedient faith, so we are saved when in obedient faith we are baptized in water. You've got to think about that expression. Even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism saves us. i got to tell you, folks who deny the necessity of baptism today have a lot of problem with that statement. Baptism doth also now save us. How can you make that any plainer? Baptism doth also now save us. But he goes on to explain. He says it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Uh, it's not just getting wet it's not that you just get into a pool of water that you maybe are completely immersed in a pool of water it's not just washing the dirt off of your physical body it's not the putting away the filth of the flesh but he says the answer of a good conscience toward god when we act in faith 
to do what God told us to do, when we get into that water, when we are immersed in that water, as a response to our as a response to what God has commanded and because we believe, then it is effective. It's not just getting wet. It's getting wet with the intention to respond to the commands of God. And of course, the last phrase there tells us that the power in it all comes from Jesus, that he died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead. If Jesus had never died and been resurrected, you could be baptized as many times you could be baptized a thousand times. It wouldn't make any difference and it wouldn't save your soul. But because Jesus did that work on the cross and because he was resurrected from the dead, then baptism works. That passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, certainly tell us a lot about baptism, but I've got to tell you, that powerful passage wouldn't make any sense if the flood story wasn't true. You need to believe in that flood story because it has lots of implications to what we believe and what we should be practicing religiously today. I think we need to believe that flood story very importantly because it tells us what our judgment day will be like. First of all, let me suggest to you that the flood story as a precursor or a sign of what the final judgment day will be like tells us that there's going to be some element of surprise to it. People will be surprised just as they were in the days of Noah. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 24. Again, the reading of verse 36. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, we already, we already emphasized that expression. There's where Jesus acknowledges that the flood actually happened, right? As the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, how, how is the final judgment going to be like the days of Noah? In what way? Well, Jesus says, in those days, what were they doing? Back in the days of Noah, what were they doing? Well, they were very busy, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Uh, uh, they were busy about their secular lives. They had neglected God. They forgot about God. They weren't serving God. So he said, the final day will be like it was back in the days of Noah. People will be so busy about their regular lives that they'll be ignoring what's going on spiritually and they will not even think about doing what God wants them to do. Just like back then, so it will be in the final day. And he says, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. They didn't know it was coming. Well, why not? Why were they surprised when the flood finally came? I've got to tell you something. It's not that they had not been warned. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So all those years that Noah was building the ark, he was also warning people. But this says they didn't know what was coming. Well, why not? Because they weren't paying attention, right? It's not that the message wasn't out there. It was that they weren't listening to the message. And I'm going to tell you, that's going to be the same way in the final day of judgment. There have been plenty of warnings offered. The Scripture's full of warnings about impending judgment. But I think there are going to be a lot of people who will ultimately be surprised, be shocked, just like they were in the days of Noah when the flood came. They didn't know it was coming. Why not? They weren't paying attention. When the day of judgment comes and so many are unprepared for that judgment, They'll be surprised, but it's not because they 
lacked a warning. There are plenty of warnings given. So, the flood of Noah illustrates that Judgment Day will be a surprise to many. The flood of Noah certainly illustrates the fact that there's that is definitely going to happen. Just as certainly as Noah's flood came, Judgment Day will come as well. In Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter chapter three, beginning verse three, Peter says, "Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming?" You think there are any people like that in these days and times? Oh, you Christians are all the time talking about impending judgment. Where is it? I don't see any sign of it. Peter goes on to say, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Just as surely as God ultimately judged the world in the days of Noah, there's a great and final judgment day coming as well. Be sure of it. Be certain of it. If you believe the flood story, that God would send a judgment like he did back then, then you've got to believe what the Scripture says about a judgment day coming in the future when he's going to judge all men. Peter emphasized the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's promised that he will do this. And just as certainly as he sent the flood in the days of Noah, he will send the final judgment as well. Believing the flood story, if you believe that happened, then you better also believe that judgment is coming and you need to make preparations for it. Believing the flood story and making the application to our own impending day of judgment is important because in the process of making that parallel, we learn something about God's nature. One of the things that we learn about God's nature is that he's a very long-suffering God. And we certainly should be grateful for that. Uh, in fact, if you stop to contemplate it, if you spend any time meditating about it, you've got to just be overwhelmed at how can God be so long-suffering and patient with this evil, wicked world. It's an amazing thing to consider that the creator of all the universe patiently waits with sinful men, giving continued opportunities for repentance. But we see that God does do that, and he did do that back in those days as well. In 1 Peter 3, verse 20, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. Emphasize that. God waited. Why did he wait? Because he was a long-suffering God. It goes on to say, where in that few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And then goes on to verse 21 that we just a minute ago were dissecting and studying. Why did God wait? Because he's a long-suffering God. God doesn't want any to perish. Peter said that in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's nature that he's long-suffering, he's patient, he gives opportunity for repentance. We see that in the story of Noah. And that's a great attribute of God that we should be so thankful for, that God's a long-suffering God. I tell you, the story of Noah also tells us that he's a just God. And it's an important lesson for us to learn, that he is a God who ultimately does punish those who will not repent. There are way too many people in the world today who think that God is just so loving uh, that he could never bring himself to ever punish anyone. 
I wonder if the people who have that view of God ever read the Genesis story. Again, you've got to believe that flood story. That all the evidence is that the flood really happened. And if that flood really happened, then what you find out is that the patience and long-suffering of God has an ultimate end, and He finally sends His justice. He did then, and He will toward us as well. One more time, back to Second Peter in chapter 2, beginning verse 4. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. Notice again, Peter makes reference to Noah. And in that, he talks about the punishment that was sent in the days of Noah. Learn the lesson of Noah's day. Learn the lesson of impending judgment. Be warned and make preparation. But the great promise is the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He can make a way of escape for us. He knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And so there's some great lessons to be learned as you study the story of Noah. There's some great lessons to be learned about the very nature of God. Do you believe the flood story? I think you definitely should. Despite the fact that many critics and skeptics deny that the flood happened like the people said that it did. I believe there's overwhelming evidence that it actually occurred literally like Genesis describes. But the most powerful argument of all is Jesus believed it. Anything that proves Jesus proves the flood. Well, if the flood happened then, what kind of conclusions can we draw from that? Well, we know what kind of faith he wants us to have, a faith that leads us into action. We know that that obedient faith would include baptism. Noah is used as an example to teach us the necessity of baptism. In the judgment day, a lot of people will be surprised by it, although they shouldn't be because there's plenty of warning. It's definitely going to happen. We learn that God is a patient God, that he waits for people to repent. But ultimately and finally, he sends his judgment. What's your situation this morning? Are you ready for that judgment day? Now, as you stop to think about judgment day, I want you to remember that, it's, that although it certainly will happen, we are not certain as to when it will happen. And therefore, as we often say, it could be today. It could be in the next few moments. You may never have another chance to get your life right with God. You've got to think about that. And that being the case, if you're not a Christian yet, if you've never obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation, you, may, you need to make that decision without further delay. Upon hearing the truth and believing it, will you act upon your faith to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? That's the gospel plan of salvation. Have you submitted to it? If not, we hope you will without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to the Lord, realize that you're in an undone spiritual condition. Your soul is at risk. The Lord could come. Judgment day could be today. It could be in the next few moments. Why would you postpone making your life right with God? If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, please come while we stand and sing this song.